Tim's lunch! Tim's lunch! What's up, buddy? Hey, hey, look. Hello and welcome to Champ's Lunch, a Schmodown podcast from the hosts of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we will be breaking down all of the Schmodown action from February 2020, including the Atlanta Live event, which we were fortunate enough to attend just last night, actually, at the time of this recording. Uh, but before we get to that, Scott... How are you doing? Uh, are you uh, rehabilitated from the adrenaline rush that was the quote-unquote match of the century last night in Atlanta? I'd say that I'm partly recovered from that. I don't feel like I'm fully recovered yet. I might need a couple days to fully recover. Uh, I was feeling it last night during the match, certainly, after the match, certainly, and including when I woke up this morning. Uh, the plane ride did relax me a little bit, oddly enough, but I'm still feeling a, a little bit of the, the tension in my legs, uh, so to speak, and uh, not not so to speak, literally feeling the tension in my legs. And so, yeah, and absolutely. Did, did it live up to the hype, which wasn't really your question, but the match of the century? I mean, a- absolutely. I mean, it absolutely did. It's one of those that could have been overhyped. Uh, we, we, I think we were talking a little bit, I mean, barely, I'd call it barely entertaining the idea that uh, one or the other of these competitors would KO the other and what that would mean or what that would feel like if it, if it was that kind of match. Uh, spoilers, uh, it wasn't like that, and it, it really did live up to that. Did it live up to the 16 rounds of sudden death that John Rocco was talking about before the event? Uh, no, but, you know, maybe it got closer than some people thought it would. Yeah, no, Scott, I uh, have been talking to a couple people today about like what my experience was or whatever, and I think my consensus has been that um, it, it was different. It was definitely a different experience from what we had in Houston. I think from when we were in Houston, the main takeaway, like our favorite part of the trip was kind of just the interactions we got to have with everybody involved with the Schmodown. Um, the matches were, were fine, of course. Um, and there was, uh, some entertaining kayfabe, but like in terms of the quality of the matches, they, they weren't as strong just because they were both KOs or both blowouts. Um, this time we didn't have as much interaction with people just cause there weren't as many opportunities for that. Um, but the matches were high quality. I mean, the Inner Geek to match, yes, it had a TKO, but still made it to round three, which we didn't even get to see in uh, in Houston last year. So that was good. And then, yeah, the title match absolutely lived up to the hype. Um, the quote-unquote match of the century, you know, Brad Gilmore was saying afterwards that uh, it might be the greatest match of all time. I think only time will tell, but it's definitely up there in the upper echelon of title matches, if not overall matches in Schmodown history, for sure. Um, yeah, it's, so- it's amazing to me just comparing it to a title match from last year that I think is one of the best matches of all time, and I believe is the match that I voted for match of the year, and even one match of the year last year was the Schmodown throwdown in February between uh, Mike Kalinowski and Rachel Cushing, and again, a match that went to sudden death and had the challenger come out uh, on top. The margin in the question that ultimately decided the match was uh, not the same as that one last year since it was one letter last year, but they really feel like comparable matches. And I find it so ironic that both were live events. Granted, it was an in-studio live event versus, you know, an on-site live event like Atlanta. But, you know, both live matches, both going to sudden death, both uh, having a challenger winning in the manner that they did and, and the match being hyped about, you know, two of the greatest players in their specific um, in their specific divisions of all time being the two competitors. I don't 
no, I'll have, I'll have to have things sit a little bit. But even the momentum swings across the two matches, I, I believe that was the one where Mike Kalinowski went, you know, eight to nine points down early on to Rachel Cushing and really fought back in rounds three and four. And it wasn't exactly the same, of course. We'll get into it with between Ben and, and Dan last night. But one of them was down. One of them rode a huge momentum swing back up. And then in the case of last night, another momentum swing happening. And uh, the ultimate decision that came came down to it was absolutely incredible match and definitely uh, if this if this if this doesn't win match of the year, that means we'll have an even more amazing match at some point during the year, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, no, I think that's a good comparison for sure. I think there are, there are a lot of similarities that you've laid out there really nicely. Um, but yeah, we have a lot, we have you know a good number of matches to get to here, so let's go ahead and start with that Atlanta Live event, and let's start with the undercard, uh, and, and maybe let's actually start with what sort of led up to the undercard, some of the smack talk that was going on during the week, uh, particularly on the most recent Schmodown backstage episode, uh, mainly between the managers of the two competitors playing in the undercard match, Alex Damon and Emily Rose Jacobson. And those managers were, of course, Roxy Schreier for Damon and Tom Dagnino for uh, for Emily Rose. Um, we're really going at each other this week. Um, Roxy, very, very blunt and very open about the fact that she doesn't think Tom is a good manager and, and even doubled down on that on Saturday night saying that she, he's the worst manager of all time, which is definitely a bold take when, um, when you're talking about someone who has won the manager of the year award three times. Um, and uh, Tom, you know, just being his usual sort of flippant self about it. So Scott, what did you really think about the, the, you know, debate that was going on between the two of them? I think we, we talked about this a little bit. I think where I come down is, is more of that, the, the correct answer is is somewhere probably in the middle. I don't think that I think maybe Tom's three time manager of the year title is probably a little bit friendly to him um, because I don't think he has. He certainly doesn't have as much of a hands on managerial style as Roxy does. Um, but at the same time, I think that Roxy's takes are, are pretty hyperbolic about him being the worst manager of all time. At a certain point, you have to say, I think, look, he may not have you have the same style of, of managing as Roxy, but obviously whatever he does has worked uh, because yeah, you can look at his players and say he's had really good players over the years. And you know, he has the best faction right now, obviously, but um, like the horsemen last year were kind of not, were not playing well at all. They were uh, in danger um, coming up to that Houston live event. And then the tables really turned. Ben got that win. Tom joined the Horsemen as their manager. And from there on out, uh, they absolutely dominated the Schmodown season. So I don't think you can, you know, just brush that aside and say it was sheer dumb luck. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it is somewhere in the center. I do. I do think that I agree with Roxy's take that she is a better manager for certain, certainly for certain types of people, but different types of managers work for different types of players. I don't think Roxy could manage effectively everyone in the league, and certainly Tom can't manage everyone effectively in the league. And I think he would admit that as well. And I think probably Roxy would admit that would admit that too. I mean, she has openly talked about how she drafted specific people, but uh, and you could debate the um, how do you say, well I don't know what the right word would be you can you can debate the the intelligence of some of her, or the wisdom of some of her picks related to how many of, of those players don't uh, live in LA or maybe unlikely to be motivated enough to study in a proper way that's a different conversation but she certainly uh, takes a particular managerial approach to your point that feels diametrically opposed to what Dagnino is, is doing and I think that's where the tension comes in one point that I've been thinking a little bit more about because I saw someone mentioned I can't remember where is it's just that this is also her playing up the heel aspects of her character which is something that she didn't really do 
very much of last year or what hasn't been really explored i think in within her character that it does seem like she is a heel and as a heel she is she is taking these sort more of hyperbolic takes on on you know opposing managers and, and things like that which also explains maybe some of the comments that, that damon made uh, as well at the end of the match is is I don't even know if it's possible for Alex Damon to be a true heel, but there was a couple things that he did say in his post-game uh, interview that felt a little uh, arrogant. Not not that he hasn't earned it, but a little arrogant, certainly. But that being said, I think that, yes, I agree that they were hyperbolic. I think Tom is someone who is a man-manager of a particular type. He certainly isn't the same type of manager that you know Dan Merle had in, in the championship, and John Roca, who is a little bit, or, or I don't even say he is a little bit less of a man-manager, but may take a different approach to the game. Certainly, if you look at the managerial style of one Ben Bateman might have, say, again, not super um, in in the know and necessarily how he approached managing Dan at the New York Live event, but uh, I think it's safe to say that the two of them kind of complement each other in their quote-unquote managerial approaches, if you think of the, you know, the, the Finstock and, and, and Bateman being two of obviously very important members of the Finstock Exchange. And so I think all of that's to say that I think they're both very good managers. I think Roxy certainly has a case for being a better manager than Tom. And I certainly think Tom probably hasn't necessarily always deserved being the three-time manager of the year. And I don't think that he will win manager of the year for the next three years if he does last in the Schmodown that long with the new crop of managers that are out there, the new quality of managers that are out there, and the new demands on the managers themselves. I think Tom is evolving a little bit as a manager so far this year, but I think he has a lot of room for growth. And maybe he will grow in those ways, but it's also... Bobby Gucci, like he's not, he's only going to grow so much. Probably you can't teach uh, an old dog too many new tricks. Uh, not that his faction needs new tricks at this point, considering uh, they had three of the four uh, competitors in the, in the live event last night. But again, all that's to say, I think that Roxy overblew the situation. And I think that's been her MO for the past month, but everything going on in the fence stock exchange. Yes. The fans have been blowing things out of, out of proportion maybe. And in some of the aspects of the miscommunications uh, amongst the team members and, and Roxy has certainly been there to try it and exacerbate uh, those depictions of what's of those miscommunications. Uh, and sometimes she has a point and sometimes she goes over the top with it. That, that is, that is her prerogative uh, considering she like, I'm sure all the other managers in the league would like some of the Finstock exchange players. Yeah, no doubt. I think that's uh, some good points there. And yeah, as far as the match goes, um, you know, Tom, you know, worst manager of all time or not, uh, Roxy did earn the right to sort of, uh, you know, give it back to him uh, after this match because her player was able to come out on top. Um, Alex Damon, of course, unproven in inner geekdom. Thus far, Emily Rose Jacobson did come in with a one-in-one record uh, and I think was probably the favorite, maybe slightly, but... Um, Dame, but Damon, Alex, Damon or, or Jacobson? Jacobson. I thought Damon was a favorite, but maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, um, there may not have even been a favorite. But in, e, e, either he came, way. He came in second, which is what I always view as that person is usually okay. the favorite. But Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, the match, uh, w- you know, it was close for round one. Um, Alex Damon spinning opponent's choice in round two. Um, and, you know, we were really wondering at this point, is, is this going to sort of knock him out of the game, right? Because we know that he has some strengths in Star Wars and possibly Star Trek as well. But um, as far as across the board, does he really have, you know, the knowledge to cover every single category like you have to to, to be successful in inner geekdom? Uh, and Emily Rose Jacobson decided to go with Wizarding World, which Damon spun away from. Uh, he was able to sort of maneuver his way through it uh, and have a decent round, picking up 
four points. Um, and then Emily Rose Jacobson uh, hit spinner's choice. So things were going well for her in this round too. Um, and she decided to go with Star Trek. I think that um, she probably, or she definitely would have uh, expected herself to put in a, a better performance on what the category that she picked for spinner's choice, um, only also getting four points. And most pivotally, pivotally um, Alex Damon getting a two-point steal. Um, again, showing that maybe Star Trek is another strength of his. Uh, but also, I think, kind of putting this match out of reach, uh, probably for, for Emily, uh, it was 14-9 going into the last round. And she was only able to hit her two-pointer, uh, resulting in the TKO. And, and the first win this season for the Rockstars, Alex Damon getting his first win in Intergeekdom, remains undefeated in live events. Um, and, you know, it, it remains to be seen what's next for him in the Intergeekdom division. But, you know, based on the little bit of kayfabe we saw at the end of this match, it looked like maybe, assuming he beats uh, Ace Cabrera in his first match, that the spider, Robert Parker, um, is up next for Alex Damon. Uh, Scott, what did you think about Damon's inner geekdom debut here and also about uh, what we saw from Emily Jacobson? Yeah, I'd, I'd give it a solid like a solid debut performance and definitely better than your average debut performance, but he's not your average competitor either. I mean, he already is a very known quantity in the Star Wars division being undefeated for over two years now. And yeah, he started off with eight out of, eight out of 10 in the first round. That's you know very respectable. You know, Kevin Smets, of course, normal, normally getting perfect rounds, but even him last year getting eight or nine points uh, on occasion. Mike Kalinowski, the same. So in terms of first round performance, he's right up there with the top players in the league. I think it is in that second round, though, where he showed that he's he does have a lot of room for improvement. And I, and he admitted that, at least in a backhanded way, in, you know, in in the post-match interview, the fact that, you know, yes, he he did spin opponent's choice, opponent's choice and he did get a category that... He, you know, it, it was clear he he wasn't super comfortable with. I mean, he did say that maybe he got a little bit greedy, uh, spinning, spinning, respinning in in round two, trying to get that Star Wars slice. But you know, he maneuvered his way. You know, like a veteran would, I think, going to multiple choice, getting four out of the five uh, questions thanks to multiple choice, and maybe he got a little bit lucky that Emily Rose Jacobson didn't know. Uh, Bulgaria, that was the was the team that Ireland played in, in the Goblet of Fire in the, in the Quidditch World Cup, but uh, he was a little bit more ruthless with his steal opportunity than Emily Rose Jacobson's one. Jacobson was, and that was ultimately the deciding factor. When it comes to Emily Rose Jacobson, I think that she is someone who had a little bit of a rocky start in round one. I was fearing for her because she did only manage to get five out of ten, only that 50% accuracy rate going down three. You know, from the very get-go there, I was like, man, down three in round one. I don't think this looks good, even though Damon is also a debut here in Inner Geekdom. And she got, you know, the wheel went her way. It's impossible. You can't say it any other way. The wheel went her way on both occasions. And, you know, as much as Degnino should get credit for when his champ, you know, when his people are winning championships, you know, he was the manager there. And and they, she ultimately chose Star Trek instead of MCU, which is the one other one it seemed like she was deciding between. And I think both based on the fact that, I mean, I would have thought she was a little bit stronger in MCU, but I, obviously I don't know her super well. Uh, that knowledge based purely off the fact that Adam Lavick, uh, her boyfriend, is obviously very strong in MCU given his experience covering the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That doesn't mean that she's an expert in that category necessarily relative to other categories, but also because it seemed like the MCU might be a weaker point for Alex Damon. Of course, it, 
it's very small in that we're working with here. He missed one question on the MCU in round one and hit the Star Trek question. Again, this is small sample size, and you should go with the category that you're most comfortable with in Spinner's Choice. But I was a little bit surprised when she so chose Star Trek over MCU. And I think if, if she were to run things back and do it differently, she might choose uh, MCU there. Because once that two-point steal landed at the, at the la on the last question of round two, yes, the five-point deficit, you, you can come back from that. I mean, Dan Merle proved it in the next match. But it seemed like an insurmountable task uh, for, for, for the Rose in this instance, and it was. Uh, so overall, I think a really good performance. But if he is going to be playing the Spider in his next match, if that is what is being teased here, if, of course, uh, Robert Parker beats Ace Cabrera, he's going to need to be a lot better. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And as far as uh, Jacobson goes, I think that, you know, the whole narrative was that she really improved in her second match. Of course, she won her first match in, you know, a very poor match played by both players. Uh, but then even though she lost her second match to Brandon Hanna, she played a lot better in that match. Um, and so that was the whole, that was what Christian was talking about going into this match. And he was open about the fact that he thought Emily would win because she had improved so much. I think we definitely saw a plateau here, or maybe even a little bit of a decline from what we saw from her match in, against Brandon Hanna. I actually think she hit Star Trek as well in that match and did better um with the star trek questions against hannah than she did here maybe the lights got to her in the in the live event maybe the pressure that's did. what i was gonna say yeah yeah damon um, having that experience in live events certainly over over her it is worth something right but i think she still she still definitely has a lot of work to do before she can uh get herself up into that upper echelon of players and who knows it may be quite a while before we see her play another match just because the intergeekdom division is very competitive and with a lot of new players coming in christian has a lot of people to give matches to and with her sitting at one and two um she's probably not going to be high on the priority list for the time being so yeah and the cadence does seem to be that you're getting a singles match every single friday pretty much and then teams star wars inner geekdom are left to fight over the other match that's being released legally so it's one of those things where you're absolutely right unless she unless tom gets in there and really fights for her or christian sees something uh there that a potential for a storyline or whatever it might be i it might be hard for her to get another match anytime soon uh unless they start expanding the number of matches that they're doing every week which they did at the end of last season when they were doing the tournament play but at least it seems right now it is early in the season that might change as they are able to record on more weekends and get more matches, you know, in, in the Bay for, for editing and stuff like that. But right now it, it, all indications are that it's going to be a hard time getting a match. If you're an experienced player and you lose to someone who's, who's on a debut. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I think uh, just getting matches is going to be one of the, the toughest things to do in this league uh, in, in the, you know, in the new era, so to speak. Um, but Scott, let's get to it now. Uh, the, match of the century um biggest hyped title match maybe ever certainly probably since roca versus merle ben bateman the challenger or the champion rather uh against dan merle the challenger looking to win the belt for the fourth time of course ben looking to defend for the first time um and you know all of the drama that went on between based on the fact that these were members of the same faction um who was going to manage who ultimately uh, after changing his mind, Dagnino decided he would manage Ben and that John Rocco would manage uh, Merle. Uh, that was how it went down. And Scott, like you said uh, up front, this was really a, a match of momentum swings. And it started off the momentum really was in Dan Merle's favor. Um, he had a perfect round plus the bonus in round one. Uh, and Ben flattered a little bit. He missed a couple of questions, finding himself in a three-point hole after round one. 
But then things started to swing his way um, when the strategy came into play. I think if if he's if not the best player in the game when it comes to the strategy aspect, Ben Bateman is very high on the list, and his strategy really really paid off in rounds two and three. He put Nora Ephron on the wheel, which is a new category, a very highly specialized category. Um, Do we know that he put it on the wheel? Or are we just guessing that? We we are assuming that he put it on the wheel based on his performance. Mm-hmm. Um, this had not been really a demonstrated strength of his in the past, so I, that says to me that he was probably studying uh, for this and. In fact, that his reaction, right? He spun Nora Ephron um, on his second spin, and his reaction was like, "Huh, new category." Like I, there was a, there was an amount of swagger to the way that he said it that made me think he felt pretty confident about it. And you know what? He had every reason to be confident because uh, he then ran through the questions and had a perfect second round, uh, four for four, eight points. Um, really put the ball in Merle's court. Merle himself hit Anne Hathaway, and as you would expect, had a solid round. Six points, uh, maintaining his lead going into round three, uh, one point lead. Uh, but then once again, the strategy coming into play, uh, Ben Bateman or uh, Dan spinning opponent's choice, Ben Bateman deciding to give him Tyler Perry movies, which you have to think, well, which pretty much confirmed in the post match interview was the other slice that he put on the wheel. Uh, apparently, he's a big Tyler Perry fan again, uh, not, not something that he necessarily had demonstrated in the past, but, um, I think a really, really smart play, right? Because when you're going up against someone like Dan Merle, like he, he knows everything. Uh, but Tyler Perry has such a very specific, like he has his own like cinematic universe. There are all these movies coming out every year, some of which you probably don't even know exist, honestly. Um, and so I think if there was anything that was going to stump Dan, I think Tyler Perry was a good option. And obviously Dan did not have any faith in his abilities to, to navigate this category whatsoever because he bet zero. Ben betting three, getting it right, um, and taking the lead by two points. The crowd really getting, you know, getting behind Ben. Ben was really hyping up the crowd. Um, and that continued into round three, where uh, round, four. Ben, round four, sorry, where Ben buzzed in on every single question, came away with uh, an additional three points, 20 to 15. He was really hyping up the crowd. It really seemed like all of the momentum, everything was going with Ben. But Scott, sneakily in this round, as well as it went for Ben, was I think the moment that really decided the match. I think we'll talk about the five pointers, but um, I think this was the moment which really cost Ben the match, which was a MCU question about what was what is the only MCU film to be nominated for Best Picture. Ben buzzing in fairly early on in the question, right? Really, as as they got the words "Best Pick" out of out of Ellis's mouth uh, or out of Christian's mouth, who I was reading the question. Yeah, Christian. Um, and I think from what I can tell from what happened is that Ben, I think, thought the direction was th- thought that the question was going in a different direction. Buzzed in as he started to say best picture, realized the question was going in a different direction and could not switch his brain over in the two or three seconds um, to, you know, that you have to answer the question in order to pull out that Black Panther was the answer. Because I have no no doubt whatsoever that he actually knew that. Uh, but I think that he, he messed himself up a little bit for his strategy. Maybe he, maybe he, uh, maybe his strategy hurt him a little bit by, you know, just buzzing in, uh, you know, anticipating what the question was going to be buzzing in really early on to get ahead of Merle. Um, and he it worked up- four times out of five. It's hard to say the strategy hurt him too much, but yeah, it really, it, you yeah. look back and you feel like, man, you got to be, you got to be ruthless when you're going against a player like Dan Merle. And I, yep. again, we saw, so, so of course that made it a five point game. The fact that he was not able to pull that, uh, it could have been a seven point game otherwise. Um, 
And then Ben would have only needed to hit his two and three um, in order to win the match after Merle got 10 points, which of course he did. Um, but because it was a five point game, we were in, ended up in a tie. Dan needed to hit, or Ben needed to hit his five pointer and got an extremely difficult uh, Judd Apatow question, um, which is contrasted with the, um, I guess, uh, extremely easy, fairly easy, I guess you would say, um, question that Dan got about Nick and Nora's infinite playlist, which I think name that movie questions are always going to be, um, it's going to, it's going to be tough to, to have a name that movie question. That's going to be a five pointer. And I don't think this was definitely, I don't think this was one of them that earned the five point status. You yeah. Had it has to be asked in, exactly. It has to be asked in a specific way. I think this is, this is where I've like come down on it where it's like, Ben Bateman, any I'll, I'll raise my hand and say any question can be any sort of difficulty for any particular player, depending on you know whether they're knowledgeable about those particular actors, actresses, whatever it might be. But when you have a question that's constructed, like Dan's was, that is, you get the year of the movie, you get the two leads in the film, and you get a brief plot summary of the film, and then you're asked to name the movie, that feels like a different kind of difficulty question than a movie about here's the movie. We're looking for this specific character's name, and this is who this character is in in the film. Like those things feel like relatively more difficult questions. Now it's possible that to someone they know the answer to the more difficult question, and they don't know the answer to the easier question just because of their per personal knowledge. But you can construct a question in a specific way that makes it more or less likely that someone is going to immediately know the answer. And I think that in the case of Dan more people are probably more likely to know the answer to that question than not uh, as opposed as opposed to Ben. And that, I think that's where I ultimately come down because it's possible that, you, again, that you know the five-pointer for, for Ben, but you don't know the five-pointer for Dan. It's just the way you construct the question in this case. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when the question was asked to Dan, I said to you, he should know this. And, of course, he did. Yeah. Uh, but Ben's question, they weren't even finished reading the question. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Cause I could just tell it was an extremely difficult question. Um, and Judd we Apatow, on, not unlike Tyler Perry has a lot of movies that you probably don't even realize are Judd Apatow films. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's true. Um, you know, we were on the edge of our seats, obviously at this point, um, much was talked about the potential of this match to go to sudden death. I don't know if I actually believed it would get there, uh, but then it did. And I, I just seemed like Ben, maybe uh, of course, I think Dan was always going to be favored maybe in the, in the one point format, but also I think Ben missing his opportunity to put the game away there after, you know, having all the momentum, having a, a significant lead going into round three or round five, rather. Um, it, it always seemed like the, the momentum again shifted to Dan and sure enough on the second question about minute work, uh, Dan was able to pull the answer while Ben was not. Um, and, uh, after a truly epic match, Dan Merle winning the belt for the fourth time, um, Ben unable to defend, but you know, we will see him back a little bit of, uh, of controversy in the post-match between Ben and Roca, but it seemed to be smoothed over by the end of the interviews. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think Roca smoothed things over with what he was talking about, but yeah, Scott, uh, again, lived up to the hype. Absolutely. Um, we were sitting over with, uh, we were actually moved up to the front row and, uh, Alex Damon and his wife and Roxy were all over there watching the match and uh, watching watching the emotional uh, turmoil that Roxy went through. Just watching this match um, was, was pretty funny. It, it, it shows that she was just she was a fan just like the rest of us because I think she was going through uh, all of the same 
emotions that we were going through, though, of course, she was rooting for Ben. Um, but I was it, rooting for Ben, too. So, yes, um, it, it was an awesome match. That's ultimately what I wanted. I really did want the match to go to sudden death after, you know, we got to the point where it looked like it could. And, yeah, I don't, I don't know how anybody could be disappointed with what happened here, although I'm sure there will be some discussion about the those five point questions over the course of the next week or two. Scott, any more thoughts on uh, this match? It's one of those things where it feels like, an, you know, another chapter to take Ben Bateman's perspective. It feels like another chapter in his narrative of, you know, being at a pretty low place in terms of his singles career, middle of the way through 2017 and or sorry, 28 middle of the way through 2018. And then even still being in a kind of low place early on in 2018, although he did put a, you know, a not unimpressive performance in for the singles tournament, winning the singles gauntlet to get into the tournament uh, in season five, season six, low point. And then the run that he put on Sam Levine esque almost in terms of the run that he put together to win the singles tournament, win the belt, especially in the manner that he did. And this just feels like another chapter in the story. I mean, again, to draw a comparison to, you know, an, an inner geekdom uh, championship match that I already compared it to from last year. Uh, Mike Kalinowski came in as as the champion, and, and it felt like he needed to win that match to cement his legacy in inner geekdom as someone who you know was had beaten Rachel now and had done everything that he needed to do uh, to to cement himself as one of the best players in inner geekdom. And he came back later. He earned another title shot by beating Smets at Collision, and then you know did beat Rachel finally. Uh, in the second title match between the two of them later, you know, later in the year last year. And it feels like this is this is just another chapter in that story for Ben as well for me. I mean, obviously, there's a few more irons in the fire, just like Kalinowski, as you know, Ben and, and Riley will be hunting down that team's belt, which I think Dan and, and Roka both acknowledged in the post game interview as well. And so it's it's one of those things for me that I hope that he's able to come back strong from this like Kalinowski was last year, because he has absolutely nothing to hang his head about. Will he be kicking himself? Absolutely. He'll be kicking himself about the Black Panther. I'm sure he'll be kicking himself about some of the round one questions that he missed and the one point steal that he missed on Dan uh, in, in Anne Hathaway in round two, because, you know, any 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 margin here and there and the outcome would have been different. I don't think he can kick himself for the five point, though, and I don't think he can kick himself uh, for the sudden death either. Uh, and so he will think about those things. I'm sure I'm sure he still is thinking about those things today and probably will be for weeks to come. But I do think that he also is in a position to bounce back. I mean, he still is a part of the Finstock Exchange, which I think is an important faction for him to be a part of, to have that support, even with the tension that may arise between him and particularly Roka uh, in, in the exchange as it, as it happens. But he has the support of his manager. He has the support of his faction, including Dan, who I think is always a really supportive uh, teammate and faction make and, what, and whatnot. And I think that he will come back from this. I, I believe that pretty strongly, whether it's first in teams or first in singles that that happens. I don't know, but I have full faith that he will come back. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, I think we'll, we're certainly not going to see the last of him. Maybe free for all will be our next sighting, but um, Probably. regardless, Scott, I think the overall live event experience was really good, even though, like I said, it was a little bit different from Houston. Um, great venue for the event, um, really loud crowd, just like there was in Houston. Um, and of course the matches uh, were fantastic. Um, so yeah, the, the live event experience, if you still haven't been to a live event yet, you got to get out to one because it, it really is the full Schmodown experience. Um, you get to, you know, you get to meet everyone and um, it's, it's, it's a great experience. And I hope uh, that we get to go to another one before the end of the year, for sure. 
Yeah, um, I mean, that would be awesome. And and also, like, yeah, if you can afford to get out to one, I mean, Scott and I, we've been to two now, and we've had, to your point, Scott, we had completely different experiences at both of them, very complimentary experiences, too. And it just proves that I think no matter the particular live event that you go to, there's quite the rewarding experience uh, to be to be had there, even if the matches aren't the best. Uh, the crew and the cast and, you know, obviously all the members of the Shmodan, even the fans of the Shmodan, I think they make it worthwhile. And then when you're lucky, like we were this this time in Atlanta in terms of the match quality, I mean, you, you don't need anything else. Yes, uh, we could have, you know, especially on the first night, we could have maybe interacted with them a little bit more. We could have tried a little bit harder uh, there if we felt like we needed to. But, uh, I mean, the matches were more than enough and uh, the interactions that we did have were very, very rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we did the VIP this time, which is not something we did in Houston. I say, True. and I would say if you can afford it, absolutely worth it because, uh, you know, yeah. you get all of, you get the meet and greet and all of that. You also get the post show Q and A, which was really interesting. Christian drops a little secret tidbit in every single post show Q and A. Um, and you get to have the whole cast photo on stage. And I mean, probably the best thing was the seats that we got, you know, there are yeah. special reserved seats for, VIPs, like I said, we were on the front row by the time the big title match happened, and we were on the side of the stage where the competitors, you know, entered. So we were right there in the thick of the action, you know, yeah. right next to everyone as they entered. So yeah. that and we were in the awesome. second row for the first match, so it's not like we yeah. were that further back in the yeah. first match. Yeah. Okay, Scott. So let's move on and talk about some of the other stuff that went on the studio matches that we had in February. There were other matches in in February. Yeah. I can't even. What was um, that? <laughs> Let's start off looking at the singles division. Let's talk about sort of the little SEN live mini gauntlet that happened. Uh, we had RB3 against Ben Goddard and Bonnie Somerville against Brett Sheridan. I know that Christian was probably rooting for a Goddard-Somerville uh, match to happen based on uh, the you know the the bit that has gone on between the two of them on SEN. Uh, and he only, but he only got half of what he wanted because uh, Ben Goddard did win in a fairly impressive performance against RB3, who unfortunately drops to 0 and 3. Um, and Brett Sheridan, uh, de defying the odds, I guess, um, defeating Bonnie Somerville uh, 11 to 10. Bonnie also dropping to 0 and 3, uh, and then being traded immediately by her manager Shannon Barney to. Robert Meyer Burnett in, in a somewhat baffling trade that sent Claudia Dolph to corruption after already having been traded originally. Um, but Scott, what did you think about uh, what we saw from Ben Goddard and Brett Sheridan here? Obviously, they're not going to play each other because they are both in the same faction. Um, the Den, maybe that, maybe that's the storyline here from these matches is the Den getting two big wins. Um what did you think about what we saw from from Ben and Brett? Do, do you see these guys posing any sort of a threat going forward? I'm, I'm guessing maybe in the case of one of them, probably not in the case of the other. Yeah, I can't say that I see Brett Sheridan posing too much of a threat to, to any other serious competitor in the league. It's honestly one of those situations where, yeah, he got the win, but is he really going to get another match anytime soon? I'm not 100% sure that, that I, he even will. Here's what I'll say. I think he will because the fans love Brett Sheridan. And, you know, you need those kind of matches every now and then, sure. um, like a Makuga match. And obviously, well, that's Mac what I was going to say. Makuga is not around right now because yeah. of what he's doing with his new show. Um, and so maybe Brett Sheridan is going to kind of fill that gap where Makuga or the Wildberries might have beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I don't feel like he has the... I mean, I know he scored 11 points, but it doesn't feel like he has the quality of even a Makuga. That being said, that doesn't mean yeah. he won't get a match. Um, I mean, Makuga's been uh, put out to the slaughter uh, once or twice in his time just for the sake of 
putting on a show. And obviously, that doesn't mean that he is always destined to lose those types of matches because he does he does put off the occasional upset. I mean, the Makuga magic is a real thing. Um, and maybe the Brett Sheridan magic can be a thing too because, yeah, he did beat Bonnie. It was, you know, a, a bit of a, def- to, to put it kindly, it was a bit of a defensive contest, I think, as maybe Ellis put it at one point during the match. But it was 4-3 after round one and, I don't know, like the round two wasn't particularly impressive Four th- four three in the favor of Brett. I think Bonnie leveled things at the end of round two, like eight, eight. And then, I mean, it was basically just who could answer around three question. Uh, Bonnie got the two, Brett got the three. And that was that was the end of it. And so, again, I think it was a little bit of an underwhelming match. I found round one uh Besides the humor that might have been happening behind the scenes, a pretty painful match to watch in terms of you know the question answering. But there was comedy and other aspects to make up for that, and that's okay. Uh, I think that the RB3 Ben Goddard match, to, to change gears a little bit here, is one that I was more interested in because I expected – I had somewhat reasonable expectations for both of these players. RB3, probably uh, unfair that he's 0-2. And probably unfair still that he's 0-3. Uh, and they both put up perfect round ones. I mean, they both did the Dewberry in in round one there, uh, get, getting the full nine points, which was quite impressive. And obviously, another conversation that we may or may not have on this episode is how many perfect rounds that we got in the month of February and if that will change in the future. But they both did record perfect round ones. They both did pretty well in, in, in round two as well. I think they both went three for four, uh, been getting five points and a steal while uh rb3 got uh four points i believe and and did not was not able to get that middle earth steal off ben and that was pretty much the match right because then uh they they traded i think maybe they, they traded some round three questions i believe but ultimately ben coming out on top and i i would expect ben to get another match sometime soon he's definitely not yet at the level of uh, competing for that singles belt, or maybe even in that second tier of players, he hasn't proven himself. He could get there, absolutely. But if he has to play, you know, someone like Barbarian, who we'll talk about in a second, who was also a debut winner, I think he's going to be in a little bit of trouble. Maybe I, I don't know. I mean, he he had a a pretty solid first match uh, overall. Uh, you I know, agree. O- yeah. only missing a, a one one question or so. Uh, you know, going to multiple choice on another. I think, but um, yeah, it I, to get I spinners think- choice. I think the reason why we're skeptical maybe is just because the questions were on the easier side in this match. And so um, it didn't take a, a ton of skill maybe for, for Ben to do what he did. Um, but I think he will be competitive in the singles division, even if uh, he's not able to to get to that upper tier, like you said. Um, and yeah, Bonnie versus Brett, not much else to say here. Kind of what we expected, maybe a little higher scoring than we expected actually. Um, but Brett coming out on top, Probably will get another match, but I think that I'd be surprised if he if he's able to notch another uh, one in the win column. Um, to your point about Ben, to your point about Ben, though, yeah. he scored 17 points. You're absolutely right. He scored 17 points, and he still had his three point and his five point left, mm-hmm. I believe. So he absolutely could have put up you know serious numbers. I don't know if 25 is the point record, or I can't remember right now off the top of my head where the point record is, but that's way up there. And so he, you're absolutely right. He can be competitive. I would be interested to see if the question difficulty does change because it seems to be a little bit different in every match. It's been generally on the easier side, but it's been different every match. You know, can he perform well outside of a, you know a, a strength category like Middle Earth, which he got to choose from Spinner's Choice, um, and can he you know deliver the goods and under pressure in round three if push comes to shove? Yeah, I think I think those are the big questions that remain for him. Um, elsewhere, Scott. Uh, 
Two, two wins in the singles division for the Finstock Exchange. First, we saw Mark Riley defeat Janine the Machine. Uh, this was, you know, a pr pretty hyped up match between two veteran players. Once again, I think Janine with a chance to sort of take that next step um, and establish herself as one of the top players in the league, as I think people still believe that she can be based on some of her past showings and showings in maybe the larger scale matches. Um like the four ways and the five ways and stuff like that. Um, but once again, Janine, uh, round three, really getting to her here. Um, she was unable to pull out both her three and five pointer here. Um, and Mark Riley, despite, you know, probably not being at his, the, the heights that we're used to seeing uh, Mark Riley at, um, was able to get the win thanks to a, a nice spin of horror in round two for sure. I and mean, you know, that's what he, that's where he would have wanted the wheel to go. Um, and he did navigate that category at pretty much as you would expect, have expected him to do. But Scott, I was one of the people who thought Janine was going to win this match. Um, and once again, I think round three, letting her down the round three bug, getting to her, there was a lot of talk after this match about, Janine being overrated. And I think that I, I saw a comment that I, I pretty much agree with that. I think she probably is overrated, but not, it's not her fault that she is overrated. I think it's more about the way that she has been talked about by, you know, maybe, maybe Har the Harloffs and Ellis's of the world. Um, not, not necessarily how she has talked about herself or, or anything like that. I think people really wanting her to do well because she seems like a good person and, um, it, you know, obviously someone who works very hard at studying, um, but probably letting their affinity for her as a person maybe get the better of their judgment in terms of how she is as a Schmodown player because she's got six losses now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, some of those losses, a lot of those losses are against really good players for sure. Um, but I don't but she's think, in like, winning positions in a lot of those matches. Yes, and, and you know, having Stacy Howard as your best win is not not good enough. I think to to crack that top echelon of players, and I'll be interested to see. Maybe she uh, can do make something happen in teams. I think she has a good match uh, at, with Sam Levine as as a manager, um, but another disappointment for Janine for sure. Um, and Mark Riley finding a way to win as he has a couple times uh, in the past. Uh, couple of years past year or so um even when he doesn't play his best and uh, good win for the finstock exchange yeah it absolutely is and i you know i was someone who I, I really wasn't sure who to pick going to the match i think i had a little bit more faith in riley than you did but i think if you put a gun to my head i still might have taken janine in this match and, and maybe that is down to the way that people have been talking about janine i mean even people not in her faction talking about you know she's in that conversation of best players without a belt up there with mark and draco uh now actually sorry no he's he has a belt now with the with uh, the Lon, Lon Harris is yeah, Lon, about yeah, now. Lon Harris. You're right, absolutely. Yeah, Lon Harris there, and and to your point, I think that might just be a little bit unfair, uh, unfair pressure to be putting on her um, because she hasn't ultimately uh, delivered in round three. And there have been other players who have, say, like a Drew McQueenie, who's delivered in team in the teams format, but really hasn't been able to put it together, largely due to the fact of its round three performance uh, in, in the singles division. And maybe that's the case with Janine. We'll see if she can put together a good run of teams, if she gets that quality of partner, which, you know, she might end up getting uh, with the usual suspects. I think, you know, over time, it'll be interesting to see if the family stays together as a team or if Sam Levine uh, re-inspects whether or not it makes sense to have Guy and McWeeny. Maybe it does. I'm, I'm not really coming down either way there. I think that it's a tough call. But putting someone like Janine with someone like Drew McWeeny, 
that could be really good. But right now, I'm not sure about that. I, I at first was more confident in that, that maybe McWeenie and, and Janine would be a better partnership than McWeenie and Guy. I, I've cooled on that perspective a little bit. I think Guy compliments McWeenie really well in a lot of ways that aren't really to do with the movie trivia. And I'm not sure if Janine would bring those same qualities to their partnership that's a conversation for a different time however because i think this is a great win for mark riley i think this is the, exactly the kind of win that he needs i think that he and janine are are you know as always with riley he's an incredible competitor uh very very courteous and, and always really i think very supportive for all members of the league and you could see that on stage but i mean this is exactly the kind of win i think that he needed to jumpstart both the way that people talk about Riley, but also his own confidence in himself to deliver the goods uh, when it counted. Because, yes, he got a little bit fortunate with the horror category, and he had a little bit of a shaky round one. But the fact that he had a shaky round one and that he wasn't able to let that affect him in the rest of the match, of course, it does help that he got horror. But the fact that he was able to work through that and persevere through that, whereas if you look at last year, you might think, well, you know, a bad round one, he's probably out of it. Uh, from last year and he, and he was able to really do that i think that's a great sign uh for mark and the fact that this match ended in a tko uh will give him confidence it will absolutely give him confidence uh going into his next match sorry do we know his next match yet do we know I, I don't think we know yet yeah i don't think we do either but i think he's definitely i mean he's up there in the ranking so he's going to be getting you know he, he's a match probably a match or two away from a number one contender shot so he, he's right up there where he wants to be and he has a match with who's the boss uh coming up as well on the near horizon, I'd imagine. So all good things for Riley here and exactly what the type of win that he needed. Yeah. Who's the boss going to play the odd couple? I think uh, next. That's month. right. Yeah, uh-huh. that's absolutely right. And I do want to say one more thing about this match. And it's not related to either of the players. It's that Sam Levine, uh, early contender for number one spinner of the year uh, for the way that he entered the spin zone on Janine's loss, uh, calling it, you know, an incredible performance by her. Cause I got a news for him. It was not an incredible performance yeah. by his competitor, uh, but I appreciated the fact that he's going to go into those interviews and, and do his best impression of Kelly and Conway. Yeah. I, I think we've talked about this with Roxy too, sort of on this episode. I think the managers like Roxy and Sam need to realize that you can be a positive minded manager um, and you can really support your players without being so extreme and saying, look, the, you know, Alex, there, nobody, there's a 0% chance that um, Emily Rose, that anyone is going to beat Alex Damon or something like that, or that, you know, Tom is the worst manager of all time. Like, I think, I think you could still be a supportive and, and confident manager in your players and also be pragmatic at the same time. Uh, and I, I don't know that we've necessarily seen that from, from Sam there, as you're pointing out, and maybe, maybe not as much from Roxy either, but um, you know what? You know what? It worked. It's worked out for Roxy fairly well so far. So we will see what happens going forward. Um, Low end though, because she only managed the odd couple. That is true. Um, elsewhere, you know, Scott, I mentioned that other win for the Finstock Exchange, and we talked about it a little bit. That's the Barbarian. Um, you know, much hyped debut. He he was getting a lot of buzz going into this match as someone to watch. Um, obviously, he did get picked in the first five rounds in the main draft. I believe. Um, I believe he was. Um, the fifth round pick for um, fifth or sixth. Yeah, I, can't, I can't remember right um, now. Yeah, I, I, I think, believe I think he was Dem- picked in the main draft. He was. Uh, yeah, he was picked sixth round because Demolanta was picked in the fifth round. Okay. Yeah, Barbarian getting picked by the Finstock Exchange, and uh, he really proved himself against Clee Wiggins, a debut from uh, the from Corruption, who definitely was picked in the in the main draft. I do remember her being picked in the live draft, I believe, um, and. Uh, you know, they, they both started off uh, 
pretty well in this match, nine to seven after round one. Um, and even after round two, you know, a, a four point game, a, a reasonable round two for both of them, seven points for Barbarian, six for Klee. Um, but Barbarian, you know, pr- proving very impressive, um, not having to end up and, and did not end up having to answer a question in round three. Klee Wiggins really sort of flamed out um, after uh, round uh Round two, she had a. There was a steal that happened, uh, a one point steal for a barbarian that I think uh, may, maybe took a toll on her, and she couldn't end up pulling either the two, three, or five in round round three. And the barbarian getting a win with seventeen points, just like with Ben Goddard, uh, like you said, Scott. I think this might be a good matchup next in the singles division, um, and I think it'll be a good opportunity for one of them to prove that their first match wasn't a fluke that they actually. Uh, can equip themselves nicely against somewhat higher quality opponents um, than either RB3 or or Clee Wiggins. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Barbarian is a name that we're going to be hearing a lot this year just because of his character, first of all, but also he backed it up with his trivia um, knowledge, much like we saw maybe with sort of the loony bin at the end of last year, bringing both the character and the knowledge to the table. Yeah, cause I think the best comparison for him is someone like Tom. Obviously, we have very low sample size, especially in singles, since Tom hasn't made, hasn't played a singles match yet. But very, you know, the the type of players who they're much typed for their knowledge, because you know, again, Barbarian got that perfect round. Tom is very well known for getting a lot of perfect rounds in the teams division last year, hardly ever missing a question. I think that Barbarian through his first match, and it's just his first match, but is building a similar reputation uh, for himself, and and we'll see where it goes. I, I think it would be really fun to see him and Tom play each other uh, at some point, certainly with the, given their characters and also their knowledge. But it does seem like he is destined for a, a different path for now. The fact that Tom hasn't been introduced yet into singles, uh, probably a, a, a firm sign of that. But to your point here, I think this is a great debut, a relatively forgettable match overall, I think. Uh, I don't know if we'll remember this match in a few months time, but it was a really strong opening and there were, I think that, you know, the month of February, we'll see if this continues to be a trend as well here, but it really did seem like there was a lot of matches that there was a, you know, a certain event or a steal, whatever it might be at the end of round two, that really took the the wind out of a bunch of player sales. I think Janine is one of them. Yes, she really did kind of throw things away in, in, in round three where you expect a little bit more from her, but she had that steal at the end of her round two uh, and then Riley went on that you know, one on that string of a per, not a near perfect round, got four for four with for seven points in horror. Um, but having those steals just really take the wind out of your sails. It happened to Emily Rose Jacobson, happened to Janine, happened here to Clee Wiggins. It happened, I think, to another uh, person as well that I'm forgetting right now. Um, uh, uh, maybe not, but the point is, I think this is happening a lot and, and it seems to be happening more frequently than I remember it happening last year. And I wonder if it's because of that tension and the anxiety that's building in the studio, having so much to play for in every match, even, you know, even the debut matches having, you know, playing for your faction, playing for those points, it really does seem to build the tension up. And that's something that they've been talking a lot about on backstage during the recording, uh, on the days they record, you can really feel the tension in the rest of the day, which is usually a little bit more laid back all the way to the end when you have the more serious matches, maybe. And I do think that was the case here because Clee Wiggins, it seems like she just mentally shut down a little bit after that's the Barbarian stole, uh, even though it was only a one-point steal, I think, at the end of round two. And I don't want to say she threw in the towel because I have no idea what was going on in her, in her head. But it felt like, you know, when you go 0 for 3 and all three questions in, in round three, that's usually not a good sign. 
Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, I think that maybe it showed that uh, rounds one and two were a little bit of a fluke. Maybe she hit some of her strengths. Maybe those round one questions uh, were a a, a bit on the easy side, like we've been talking about. Um, And that when we got into the more, we got more into the weeds with those round three questions. Maybe some of her weaknesses came out, but regardless, it's strange because she had a good round too, except for that steal. She yeah. went, she got her first three questions right, and then just you know missed a little bit on that fourth one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I she I think we definitely will see her in another match. Just because I think she showed enough in this match to warrant getting another a second chance. Um, but the barbarian definitely someone again we're going to be seeing a lot of. I think um, and. Uh, Another, you know, great piece for the Finstock Exchange, potentially. You yeah. talk about they they have, you know, these four former champions that have the singles and teams champions right now. Um, and now they have maybe, you know, an early rookie of the year candidate. It, it just almost seems unfair at this point. And they and they drafted that rookie of the year candidate in the sixth round. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, you can't blame anyone but the league for that. I, I think that, yes. Tom, of course, has this you know incredible sport, you know riches in in his faction with the with the champions, like you described. But not everyone else has their first four picks locked in for them, and Barbarians just sitting sitting there. When you think about you know the people that say Kaiser took uh, early on, not that he took bad players, but it seems like he could have gone a little bit earlier in the draft. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think so. I think maybe uh, people just didn't know know much about this guy, and maybe Finstock. Um, had some knowledge that other managers didn't, but I think so. Uh, yeah, but Scott, moving on to the teams division now, we did have a couple of teams matches. Uh, first of all, uh, we had Tom and Paul against Deep Thirteen. Of course, Tom and Paul, uh, Paul Preston, Tom Ryman, really hyped up team. Um, you know, everyone was really excited about this team after Kate Mulligan and Grace Hancock picked both of them, um, thinking that this this these could possibly be the next team champions. Uh, and I think people were maybe discounting uh, what their opponents might do. Uh, their opponents being Alonzo Duralde and Whitney Seibold, who uh, were paired together by Robert Meyer Burnett and the Burning Droogs. Of course, Burnett n- didn't show up for the match. Uh, probably not surprising. Uh, I think his approach to managing is definitely uh, different from every other manager yes. in the league. Yeah. Um, but you know what? The, his players didn't really need much of a manager because um, they they certainly had plenty of, managed for them. <laughs> yeah, they certainly they, that that is true. They certainly had uh, plenty of knowledge between them. Um, you know, uh, Whitney being a guy who I think we can see in this match is probably much better off in the team setting. Uh, in in the single setting, um, he has shown himself to have some weaknesses at time, perhaps not fully understanding the rules of the game and the strategy that's necessary to win. And, and a lack of focus, honestly. It yeah. Like. Um, but when he has a, a, you know, a, a good partner, a person like William Bibiani or Alonzo Duralde in this case, he, th- that tends to bring out the best in him. And he, he definitely um, looked really good in this match. I think he had a perfect round in round one. Wh- Whitney did. Yeah. Yeah. Whitney did. Um, but the Scott, as you alluded to, the turning point in this match was in round two um, when there was a deep 13 had an opponent's choice and uh, the den or uh, Tom and Paul rather decided to go with festival darlings um, at the that. instruction of Kate, apparently. Yes. At, with at the instruction of Kate, of course, festival darlings is a, you know, somewhat difficult category. Um, if you're, if you're a certain type of player or a certain type of movie fan, you may not really be familiar with a lot of these movies. But I think that the reason this was a bad decision here is because you're talking about professional film critics 
in, in both of their cases, but in, even more so in the case of Alonzo Duralde, who has traveled to so many festivals, uh, tra travels to you know, almost all of the major film festivals for uh, you know, some 20 odd years probably that he's been uh, doing film criticism, even runs his own film festival, as I believe he pointed out during the match. Um, and yeah, with that in mind, uh, this decision by the Den really went about as well as you would have expected. Uh, 10 points for uh, Deep 13. Tom and Paul um, having a decent round two, getting uh, eight points. Um, of course, they were ahead after round one. And I think that what happened here, perhaps, Scott, is that obviously, like we said, this team was very much hyped. Um, and I wonder if, particularly in the case of Tom, right, because Paul obviously had a really good match. He had nine points in round one. But Tom missing a question in round one for the first time ever, missing a non-bonus question for the uh, in round one for the first time ever, struggling a little bit with that rom-coms category in, um, in round two, and then missing actually his two-point question in round three. Um, Tom showed some weaknesses, right? And I think I wonder if the pressure got to him because when he was playing on the Looney Bin, um, they were pretty much the underdog in almost every single match that they played. Um, and so I think that um, maybe everyone talking about, oh, Tom, you know, he, he, he and Paul are going to make an incredible team. And Tom is possibly the next singles champion. You know, he doesn't miss a round one question, all of that type of stuff might have gone to his head here. Obviously, they still played really well, ended up with 30 points in the match. Uh, 32. 32 points, which is not something to to shake your head at uh, for sure. But 36 points from deep 13, I believe a new team record. Tied, um, tied the point record, apparently. Right. Um, and I think they are absolutely going to be a team to watch. Um, maybe, we'll see if they can replicate that performance. I'll be yeah, interested it, if it, they can do it. They it have the talent, too. They absolutely have the talent, too. I want to see if they can do it, though. It would be difficult to, but I think I, I wonder if Alonzo maybe has a slightly better match with someone like Whitney uh, as a teammate. Definitely, I think potentially a higher, a, a better quality player than uh, than Matt Atchity probably uh, on his best day with, with when you're talking about Whitney Seibold. Um, and yeah. so I think at, I, at this point with Atchity seemingly over the hump, I think Whitney has a little bit more to offer. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm interested to see what this team does next. I think this is, you know, we talked about Burnett not having a very good draft with the burning droogs, but I think that maybe this is this team is potentially his best chance to to be in contention for a belt. Uh of course he has Ethan Irwin as well, I believe. Yeah, um, I was gonna say I'm not sure if I agree with that, but but they they definitely showed that um they're gonna be uh big contenders in the team's division. Um and so I, I'm excited to see what this team does next because I am a big Alonzo Duralde fan. Um any other takes from this match, Scott? Obviously, you know, the Den had a pretty good month here with some of their wins, but uh this match may be you know, hanging like a shadow over the den a little bit as we as we move on with the season, just because you know, like you said, their manager did kind of uh, make a poor decision here. Maybe just some growing pains for Kate Mulligan just getting involved with the Schmodown. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting because if you looked at the schedule for the month of February, you would have said, okay, Tom and Paul is probably where, they're pick the, where they will pick their points up. You know, maybe Ben Goddard. I, I think technically they were the underdogs in both of their singles matches, technically. RB3 being the favorite over Ben and, and Bonnie being the favorite over Brett. Obviously, I think everyone could have said those, those matches were probably a little bit of a coin flip going in but people probably expected tom and paul to have a tough match but a win over over deep 13 and what deep 13 came out and did is they came out and played extremely well i mean y y y yes we we really hit kate for some poor managing uh in round two and, and saying you know and encouraging them to to give them festival darlings i do want to give it even though because 
some for some reason, for reasons that I cannot describe, Deep 13, after Tom and Paul also spawned opponent's choice, gave them rom-coms instead of Star Trek. I mean, for the life of me, I cannot understand why they didn't give yeah. them Star Trek. Uh, it, maybe Tom Ryman, they knew that, I don't know, Tom or Paul know no Star Trek, and that's something that we don't know, and they know that. I don't know. I'll raise my hand and say I don't know that for sure, but that was crazy that they didn't give them Star Trek. I think it's possible that one of them did perhaps know it really well. I mean, like, I could see Tom maybe having that knowledge, but even more so, Paul, I think, is a, is a guy who's around the same age range as a lot of the players, I think, who are super into Star Trek and, and maybe grew up more with with Star Trek than he did with Star Wars, I guess, if you want to, you know, compare compare the fan bases um, there. So maybe they did know something. Uh, either way, I guess I guess it worked out for them in the end. You know, they they struggled a little bit with rom-coms, um, perhaps not putting in quite the, the sterling performance you would have expected there, mm-hmm. uh, falling four points short of getting a perfect second round. And uh, those four points decided the match, I guess, in the end, because it was a 36-32 victory for uh, for Deep 13. Um, yeah, not, not just four points, though, but also the one-point steal. So you're right. I mean, you got to give them true. credit there. But it, it was just a little bit of a baffling uh, it, it take there. And I wonder if they have a different – if they have a manager there at all, uh, if they are encouraged, you know, you know, go, go with your strength there because you guys are good at Star Trek. Yeah, no, uh, I, I that that's that's a good point to bring up. You know, they were kind of questioning after the match. Do we even need a manager? You know, like they do. Al- Alonso has never had a manager. Whitney, his only real experience with the manager was with Ricky Hayberg, who eh, not not that much of a manager really either. Um, and so it will be interesting to see what kind of effect Burnett has on this team when Burnett eventually does show up, assuming he does, I guess. But um, yeah, and, yeah, maybe, and, maybe and I'm not saying Roxy or Dagnino are the right people to manage someone like that. I, again, I think that it takes a particular kind of manager to manage someone like Alonzo and Whitney. Uh, maybe a Sam Levine, for example, might be a really good fit for them. But I, they do need a manager like they need someone there because neither of these people are particularly good at playing the game. It didn't ultimately affect the outcome of this match in, in a way that negatively affected them. But in the future, it will at some point uh, when they don't score 36 points uh, or they aren't handed festival darlings on opponent's choice. Like it, at some point, it, it will it will matter. And, and um, it won't be it, it wasn't then. It, it may not be the next match, but everyone in, in this day and age in the showdown needs a manager who has their back and is in their corner. And may, maybe Robert Meyer Burnett will be there for them. Uh, in the future. I mean, I hope so. The fact that he is a manager in the league, but uh, I doubt it. And I will just say one final point about Tom and Paul. I think they will bounce back strong from this. I think that they maybe worked through their initial chemistry uh, misalignment. I don't know what the right way to describe it is uh, in this match. And I think in the future, I mean, they still scored 32 points and that was with Tom missing his two point question. I think that they're going to come back just as strong next time. And you won't lose too many matches. I don't think uh, if you're scoring 32 points. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, I think that th- there's no reason to panic, certainly, if you are Kate Mulligan and the and the den there. Um, other teams match we had, Scott, the real rejects coming back after a little bit of time away. Um, obviously coming in with a one and five record, but have always been a really fun team. I think one and five is probably, you know, a harsh record for them, given uh, what we've seen both that both John Humphrey and Greg Alba can do maybe in their individual capacities. John Humphrey, of course, obviously having that legendary free for all in his in the first ever free for all and Greg Alba putting in some good free for all showings as well. Um, 
I think uh, these two guys probably have more tr trivia knowledge than a one in five record would indicate. They took on the new team of Cuckoo's Mess um, from the dungeon. That was Video Drew and Rick Hong. Um, and uh, the real rejects, uh, you, know, you know, maybe we're, we're talking about uh, the round ones being pretty easy. And this might have been the most egregious example maybe that we saw this month of, of easy round ones. The real rejects both getting perfect rounds. Uh, missing the bonus, of course, but uh, and video Drew and Rick uh, each getting seven points. So uh, really strong round ones from from both teams who who maybe are not historically uh, known for just like lighting up the scoreboard like they did in this match. Maybe saying something about the difficulty of the questions. Um, round two strategy came into play a little bit um, with a Cuckoo's Mess spinning opponent's choice. Um, yeah, the the real rejects I think uh, had some debate about um, what what category to give them. Denzel Washington was ultimately what they decided with. I'm not sure there was like huge rationale there. Maybe they felt like they were good at it and could get some steals. Um, but hey, it, it worked out for them because uh, the the cuckoo, cuckoo's mess really struggled through the category, um, only picking up four points as to uh, compared to the seven points that the real rejects got in their category of two thousands. It was a six-point game uh, going into uh, round number three, and uh, after maybe look after starting out looking like maybe they were able, they were going to force uh, real rejects to to answer a question, um, they were unable to pull out their five-pointer, um, and this match ended with a one-point TKO for the real rejects. Finally, getting that second win. Uh, it's been it had been quite a while since they they got there. Um, since they had since they had won a match, I think maybe they actually their first match ever was the one only other one that they've won. But uh, don't quote me on that. But Scott, either way, even, even though this was a, a decently played match from uh, the real rejects, maybe a little bit less so from Cuckoo's Mess. Um, I don't think either of these teams uh, are going to be making much noise in terms of competitive wise in uh, the the teams division. I think maybe this is sort of the teams equivalent this month of what we got with Brett Sheridan and Bonnie Somerville, just kind of a couple of fun, uh, fun uh, teams, you know, obviously real rejects, funny guys. Um, they had a, a nice little entrance making fun of uh, Roca a little bit. Um, that was a great entrance for, for beating, uh, for beating Greg Alba for entrance of the year. And then of course, video drew and always a wild character. And Rick Hong uh, seems to be a wild character. Uh, you know, very odd couple like of them in there. Right. Dynamic. That that uh, matches her well, you know, replacing Tom. Obviously, the two of them are a pretty uh, incredible pair. But maybe Cuckoo's Mess has potential just because of the character uh, aspect to this team uh, and the fact that Video Drew is really gaining a lot of traction in the fan base. I think that we will see more of this team. Yeah, I mean, obviously with Video Drew, it, the the big hurdle, I think, is the fact that she lives in New York now. Obviously, there will be occasions, certainly when she's in L.A., for work, I'd, I'd imagine you know going out there on, at least every once in a while for work. Maybe I'm wrong on that point, but no, I would fully expect to see them again. I think it's a bit harsh to say this is the equivalent of Brett Sheridan and Bonnie Somerville. I think that in terms of the fun that you might have had with the match and the characters, maybe it, it steers that direction. But it was a TKO, and they had the potential. The real rejects the potential scoring 34 points. I think that is. Uh, that's a bit unfair to, to compare it in that dimension, at least. And I would expect the real rejects to get another match, assuming schedules work out. Will they win that match? Will they will they be on track for 34 points in that match? I think it's a great question to ask. I don't know if I have full faith in that. But the quality of this performance, 
even though the Cuckoo's Mask performance is maybe a little bit lackluster, I think certainly warrants them to get another match. Who that'll be against, I think we need to see a few more teams play in this division first before it is clear to me who that would be unless they play against another debut team. That would be a little bit surprising if they did. That I would I would personally be complaining about that uh, if I were their manager in terms of Koi Jan. I think it was Koi who's their manager and uh, the Quirky Mercs. Um, but yeah, I think they put in a really solid performance and if they can build on that and they can show some consistency there, do I think they're going to be contending for a title? No, but they certainly had a first performance this season that indicates, hey, maybe maybe we are a team you should think about. Yeah, I mean, quality wise, certainly better than than Brett versus Bonnie. I just think that, like like we talked about with with Brett Sheridan, I'm not sure how much the, this win is ultimately going to mean in the grand scheme of things. Yes, it'll probably get them another match, but I don't know how much confidence. Uh, I have in them to win this match, given their history, right? They have five losses. They've lost to the Wildberries. They've lost some, to some teams who are not the strongest, but sure. maybe with a new manager, uh, maybe with, you know, the game changing, if they have the wherewithal and, and the drive to actually commit to doing a little bit of studying and preparation, then maybe they can get there. Because like, like we said, they have both shown in their individual capacity that they have, uh, yeah, that they can have pretty good skills. So we'll see what what becomes of uh, of this team. Scott, the only other match to talk about from this month is the Star Wars match um, between Adam Witt and Sean Sullivan, two rookies to the Star Wars division. Of course, we have seen Adam Witt before uh, as the former partner of Paul Preston on the movie guys. Um, and, you know, the Star Wars division, I think, can be a little bit tricky. You know, a lot of times people will come into the star Wars division and think, Oh yeah, I'm a star Wars fan. I, I can do this. Um, and then not really realizing on them. The, the depth of the question, it, questions are that you get in the show Uh, this was not one of those match matches though. Uh, Scott, these were two guys who, uh, rookies to the star Wars division and they both acquitted themselves pretty nicely. I think, I think they both showed that they have, uh, a reasonable level of, of star Wars knowledge, uh, definitely enough to handle um, a lot of the, you know, more in the weeds, tougher questions that you get in the Star Wars division. One thing I do want to talk about, of course, is um, round one and the fact that uh, there was a, a change to round one with there only being six questions uh, as opposed to uh, were there 10 in the past or, or was it just eight um, in the Star Wars division? I thought it was 10, but maybe it was eight. I just remember Alex Damon always having like 10 points after home, but it yeah, might have just been eight. I think you're right. I think it might have been 10, you know, to match the, what you get in inner geekdom. But either way, this is obviously an effort to um, help out the question writers. Obviously, first of all, all questions are being recycled. Uh, you know, the, the Star Wars question, all of the old Star Wars questions are going back in the mix. But also, I think to, to answer some of the complaints about Oh, are you know? Are we going to run out of Star Wars um, questions eventually? Especially now that um, you know we're probably not going to be getting another Star Wars movie for a bit. Um, you know, you you wonder if they are going to burn out all the questions. But I think with there being less questions to answer now in round one, um, that will help the question writers out um, there. Mm -hmm. But like I said, solid solidly played match by. Um, by both players, um, Adam Witt doing decently with the solo category in round two, but uh, Sean Sullivan um, really doing well. I, I forget what his category was, but um, he he came away with eight points um, and took a four-point lead into round 
three, you kind of wondered if Adam Witt might might uh, flounder and, and Sean would get the TKO, but he had a very, very impressive pull on his five-pointer, a Phantom Menace question about um, the, the, the person in the Trade Federation who... Uh, who, uh, the Viceroy's the, name, right? The emperor, no, the Viceroy is Newt Gunray, but it's the guy that, um, well, maybe actually it was the previous Viceroy before Newt Gunray, but regardless, yeah. it's the guy that that the Emperor is like, I don't want this stunted slime in my sight again. Um, and he was able to, Adam, Adam Witt was able to pull the, the answer out after, you know, asking for at least one repeat, I think. Um, it really surprised everyone in the studio. Really nice pull um, that I'm sure even Alex Damon might have been impressed by. Um, but regardless, it didn't matter in the end because Sean Sullivan hit his two and three pointer. Uh, despite showing some some nerves in this match, I think Sean Sullivan uh, he showed that I think he's he's he could possibly be the next uh, person to challenge Alex Damon. Obviously, there's going to be some other new Star Wars competitors, I think. But 19 points in his first match without answering a five pointer, and again, given that there are less questions to answer now, I think is is a really good showing for him. And again, another win for the Den. Um, and so Sean Sullivan coming away with the victory here. Yeah, I think so. Sean Sullivan here, great initial performance, especially because man, he looked really yeah. nervous out there uh, under the lights. And I, I wonder if this match will calm his nerves because he he put in a great performance. He didn't get a perfect round one, but he got five out of six and and really built on that in the second round, which I believe it was Return of the Jedi is the category that he had in round two. And he ran through that, not perfect, but he did get five out of five, I, think, I believe, for eight points. And so really did a strong job. And and he built on the, maybe the momentum that he gained by getting a two-point steal off of wit. And that two-point steal... As, as it usually is in round two when it happens, it's pretty decisive. Um, the fact that uh, Witt missed his three but was able to hit his five uh, maybe you know, gave him a little bit of a scare, uh, but the fact that he then you know jumped out, knocked down his two, knocked down his three, and the match was over, it, it, I think it's something that Sean Sullivan's going to feel pretty good about, and I don't think Adam Witt has too much to, to hang his head about. Do I think that he's going to be a, a serious contender moving forward in the Star Wars division? Uh, no, because there are a bunch of, it feels like there are a bunch of new competitors in the Star Wars division, and there's a bunch of returning competitors. I mean, you still have Laura Kelly, you still have Andrew Dimolanta, you still have Joseph Scrimshaw. Ken Napsok is back in Star Wars. You have a ton of players back in the division, back in the, you know, returning into the division, but also new players as well. Sean Sullivan, one of them. Uh, Ace Cabrera. Is Claudia Dolph, is she? Star I'm not Wars? sure. I think she's definitely in her geekdom, but I don't know about Star yeah, Wars. I, yeah, maybe I can't remember that either. But the point is, there's a lot of competitors out there. And, and I think that although Adam Witt, I think he did put in a solid performance. I don't know if he's necessarily earned himself uh, a, a spot in another match anytime soon. But that being said, I think you should expect him to see to see him in singles and teams uh, moving very well, or at the very least teams. So we will be seeing him again, just maybe not in Star Wars. Yeah, no, I think so too. And and you know, you talked about that two point steal there. I think uh, that was actually it was that Infus Ness question that um, he, it was the first question he was asked. He didn't he didn't take the time at all to think about the question. Right. I think he learned a lesson from that because he he did actually seem to know the answer after um, you know realizing he sort of misspoke yeah. or you know mi misinterpreted the question that they were asking. So maybe even a little he knew he might have even known a little bit more than uh, his score led on. But yeah. With with how thin the Star Wars division is in terms of how often we get these matches, yep. you do wonder how long it's going to be before he gets to play again. But yeah, that, that's a great point about the about the steal because I think he absolutely knew the answer to that yeah. question, and it was a, it was a, a he's not a true rookie because uh, he did play last year, but 
it was certainly a rookie moment from someone who hasn't played that many matches and is new to this division and uh, certainly kicking himself because a four-point swing there with that two-point steal, uh, you're forcing him to hit his five-point question. That is true. Um, okay, Scott, before we get to our predictions for the March matches, which is going to be our, our last order of business, I do want to do a standings check. We have been yep. uh, keeping tally of the standings uh, on you know the matches that we've had here in February and obviously the live event at the end of January. Uh, and Scott, I'm, I'm going to throw it to you now to tell us where the, the factions stand after the first full month of Schmodown action. Yeah, I don't think too many people will be surprised to hear that the Finstock Exchange does top the standings at the end of February. They have 11 points, uh, which is a, a very, a very uh, good sum at the end of February with four wins and one loss in singles and teams. And then, uh, you know, the the 0 and 1 in, in the Star Wars Inner Geekdom League off of the Emily Rose Jacobson, it, you know, with two TKOs that helps them out as well, boosting their point tally up to 11, as well as the fact that they do get the extra point for winning the title. Uh, of course, somewhat controversially, uh, Christian did announce that they are not when, when it's two members or or two teams from the same faction. Uh, you are not awarded the bonus point for just being the number one contender in a title match. I found that to be a bit head scratching to me. I don't fully understand why that's the case, except to handicap the Finstock Exchange. Uh, found, I found that an interesting ruling, but that puts them at eleven points instead of twelve and. Uh, e even with the not getting that final point, they'll be very comfortable with a four-point lead over the Den, who I think is a, a surprise second place at the end of February. They have a, a, a very nice record of two and one in the singles teams division and one and zero oh in that Star Wars uh, division. There, they have seven points, followed by the Rock Stars, who have only played one match but have made the most of it uh, in 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 inner geekdom without the Alex Damon win by TKO. So they have four points and then there's a, a couple or actually just one, just the quirky marks at three with a, again, kind of a strange one and two record just because both bibs and uh, the kid get losses from the live event in January. Uh, but they did win their one match uh, as well for the, for the month of February, which of course was the real rejects that brings them to uh, three points because that win was by TKO. And then uh, the usual suspects and the brain droogs, both with two points, thanks to their one wins. And then Corruption, the Dungeon, and Swag uh, all bringing up the rear with zero points because they are 0-2, 0-2, and 0-1, respectively. But a lot of matches still to play. This is just the first month, and uh, it is the shortest month, too, so it's the fewest number of matches that we'll see. I say that, but I think March will be a little bit of a light month as well because of the free-for-all. There'll be a week without matches, maybe could be wrong about that uh but we'll see we'll see it's a great start for for the finstock exchange and, and how in terms of who is winning uh the faction war so far uh, no one's going to be surprised that you know the team with four champions or former champions uh, on their roster is is the one in the lead yeah no I, I you talk about the den being there right behind them i think a lot of that obviously they had some solid players and put in some solid performances but a lot of that was they just got the most matches probably of of any of the other factions and uh, you know, you look like at the bottom of the hill, for example, when you talked about swag uh, with zero points, they only had one match, right? RB3 was their only player who played, whereas yeah. I think March is going to be a big month for them. You got Paulo Yama uh, going up against John Roca, and we I, I don't know if, if for sure if this match is going to be happening in March, but it will be happening soon, according to Christian, and that is Paul and Lon Harris's first teams match. Um where they're going to be taking on the experiment, which is Mark Edward Hoyk and Elliot Dewberry. So definitely a chance for Swag to pick up some points as they get uh, more matches. And yeah, maybe the Den will 
you know, to, by contrast, we'll have fewer matches because they did have so many players making their debut here in February. Yeah, and also to your point about Swag, I don't expect him to win the match, but Ace Cabrera is a member of Swag yes. who will be getting the match. And I think more notably, and maybe with a better chance of winning, in my opinion, Chandra will be playing Brandon Hanna That's at right. some point, who's a member of Swag as well. So lots of points potential there. Uh, whereas if I look at the den here, you know, I don't know if Tom or, or Paul will be having singles matches. Brandon Hanna, of course, will be in that in that intergeekly match that I just described. Rachel Silverstreet, Ben Goddard, maybe a team's match. Uh, but I think maybe the points there for them to continue to solidify, you know, their position as second place might be a little bit shakier. And then I think yeah. the Rock Stars as well is another one to watch. Only one match so far. Uh, yes, of course, they got that win, but they will be having a team's match with the odd couple. And I can't, I can't imagine that they won't get another match somewhere in there. Uh, whether it's Stacy Howard or you know one of the other people further down the list, again, we talked about it on the last episode how her draft was a bit questionable in my opinion, based on the players that she was selecting. JT, of course, not living in LA. Alex Damon, who has played a match now, but also not living in LA. Uh, Jim Vavita, who we don't know if he's really going to study, but then you know further down her list, David Del Rio, who's someone who's been hitting you know, in and out of the schmodown based on his work. Uh, Jared Haybon as well as someone who's been a bit hit and miss and Adam Gertler who same story there hit and miss yeah uh, and actually Rachel and Ben do have a teams match so that that is one match for the for the den they're going to be going up against Owen Mugen and Vinny Mancuso from the dungeon um, yeah so so that that's something to look forward to for the den too but yeah it's it's probably too early to read much into the the standings except of course that Finstock exchange dominating as we expected yeah, and you were right. The Den did have four matches, and they were the only uh, faction to have that many matches, mm -hmm. with the exception of the exchange, just because they they the exchanges had so much going on. Right. Obviously, they had two people in the title match so that gives them kind of two matches right there if you count that way. Uh, and just that they've been a little bit of everywhere. Indeed. All right, Scott. Uh, before we conclude, let's we're going to predict three big matches um, that we are pretty sure are, will be, will all be coming up in March. Of, of course, the schedule hasn't really been updated as of this time, but one match that we do know that will be happening and will be happening next weekend uh, is the Schmodown throwdown for the month of March. Uh, and that is a team's number one contender match between corruption and the family. This will be to determine who the next challenger is to uh, the founding fathers who are the current team's champion. Uh, Scott, who do you like in this match between uh, corruption and uh, the the usual suspects, the first pick in the draft? I, I really like both teams, to be honest. I've been thinking a lot about this, and it's been hard for me to pick. I, I am ultimately, I won't hide the eight ball. I am ultimately coming down on the side of corruption. I think that they are going to take them, take this and and get them back to a you know family, ver or sorry, the founding fathers versus corruption part four. <laughs> We're going to get a part four out of this rivalry. And I, I don't know necessarily why I think that because I think this team is evenly matched from a different perspective. I think Drew McWeenie is the most knowledgeable of these four, and I think Andrew Guy is the least knowledgeable. And I think that the team's division sometimes, if you have you know those two players in the middle, if that is how it shakes out, I think because, because of, of the weight that is put on round three and round one, I think that that can sometimes pay off for you. Uh, will Drew Mc, can Drew McWeenie carry I, again? This is a little bit unfair to Drew Guy. I, I don't want to be too unfair to him here, but like with the quality of Drew McWeenie carry you through round two and and pick up the slack where Andrew Guy might um, 
let it go, so to speak, in, in round one. May, maybe. So it absolutely could happen. But I think that the quality of Mike and Chance uh, together, we've seen it time and time again last year where they can each cover for each other on days where maybe they're not, the other is not dialed in at 150%. Uh, it shows their quality there and the fact that they have a very sterling record in the team's division with only a few exceptions here and there think, may, leads me to believe that I think that they will get the win over the family. Yeah, I agree, Scott. I think I, I don't know that I have too much more to add in terms of analysis. I think that uh, for me, it, it comes simply down to the fact that um, that Andrew Guy, I think, is is the weakest player here, probably by some margin. I think that uh, Mike and Chance Ellison are, are pretty much in the same level and have shown, uh, I think, that they complement each other more than McQueenie and Guy do from what we've seen. Yeah. And uh, certainly their chemistry and dynamic seems much more cohesive than right. uh, Guy and McQueenie. Indeed, yeah, um, and so I think that corruption is gonna is gonna take this one. Of course, uh, less managerial up, upheaval now in corruption. I think with Shannon uh, stabilizing things a little bit, I think uh, that Mike uh, will will be you know revitalized by the fact that uh, Shannon, his girlfriend, is managing him, um, and I think that that will have a positive effect on their performance in this match. So I like corruption as well to. Uh, get their third match against the founding fathers, or I guess it will be their fourth match. Won't it? Yep, yeah. the fourth. Yeah, that's what uh, I was saying earlier. Geez. Okay. Okay. An another match, which we are pretty sure will be coming up in March, Scott. Um, we, we talked about it just a moment ago. Finstock exchange and John Roca going up against uh, swag and Paul Oyama um, old versus new here. The grizzled veteran versus the hotshot uh, rookie. He really took the singles league by storm last year. Who do you like in this one? Yeah, I like Paulo Yama. I think that he's going to bounce back in a big way from the end of the season that he had after a great. I mean, there, there's nothing other way to describe it. He had a great uh, 2019. He had a great season overall. It just ended on such a sour note. Some people have been pretty negative on his performance before that as well against Snyder. Some, yeah, I think even John Roca saying that he tried to basically give the match away. I didn't necessarily view it that harshly. I think that Snyder certainly missed his opportunity to win that match. I think it, it was Snyder's match to lose at, at one point or another. Uh, but yeah, here I think that Paul is going to have heard uh, the criticism that he's received, both from the league and specifically from John Roca. And I think that's only going to motivate him. I think that also uh, he, if Winston's the kind of manager that I think that he's going to be, I think that it, he is a good manager for Paul. And I think that's going to pay dividends in this matchup. I do think that Roca is maybe a little bit less mentally fragile than he's been in past seasons, having completed that goal of winning the team's belt at the end of last year and, you know, putting those uh, skeletons out of his mind or out of, you know, putting them back in the closet and leaving them there and locking the door after finally beating corruption and, and winning that team's belt with Dan. I think that that won't help him ultimately in this match. For some reason, he still just seems to have a chip on his shoulder that I can't quite figure out why he has it. And that doesn't make him a worse player, but I think that it does lead him to be just a little bit distracted. And I think Paul is going to be just really dialed in to this match. I don't know if it's going to be a KO or a TKO. I think John is going to be very prepared for this match, but I do expect Paul to win and it really not to come down to the five point question. Yeah, I, I do think I'm going with Paul as well. Um, at the same time, I do think this is the kind of match that in recent years Roca has won, right? When when his back is sort of against the wall, you you wonder, 
Um, does he have anything left in, in singles? Does he have anything left to contend with a younger player like a Ben Bateman or an Andrew Guy? Uh, two players that he has played in, in singles matches. I think similar narratives um, were, were going around those matches. And Maybe. Roka was able to come out on top. You, you've never really been able to count him out in the singles division. And so I, that yeah. is the one thing which gives me pause about picking <laughs> Paulo Yama. But I, I am ultimately going to go with Paul, too. Yeah, and I, the difference is I just don't think his back's against the wall here. I don't – like this – if there is a narrative of his back being against the wall, it's created by him having a chip on his shoulder for some reason and feeling like he has something to prove to the league. I think, if anything, Paul is the one who has something to prove to the league and that it, last season wasn't a fluke just because the narrative uh, that's been – it feels like that's been created by the conversation around him is that, yeah, I mean, he had a good run, but the guy is like – I don't know. He ended up being a little bit of a head case, so to speak, and – uh, maybe that's too strong, too strongly worded. But I think the the narrative on Paul is fairly sour. And if anything, he's the one who has something to prove here. And if Roca is trying to spin that narrative in a different direction, I mean that's his prerogative. But I I don't feel like his back is against the wall. If anything, it feels like the pressure is more on Paul here. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Um, okay, Scott, last match to talk about here. Yeah. Um, one that has been built up uh, for quite a while. We originally thought we were going to get it in January. Uh, again, not technically sure that we are going to get it in March, but I'd be surprised if we didn't see it in March just because the Inner Geekdom division is on a little bit of a hold, I think, until we get this title match. Uh, and that, of course, is the title match between uh, belt holder Kevin Smets and making her uh, you know, return to the league, her triumphant return to the league, uh, the Brown Dwarf Star Mara Kanopic. Uh, Scott, do you think the ring rust will affect Mara? Uh, do you think Smets is going to be able to retain this belt? Or uh, is Mara going to come right back in and claim that belt that she, uh, you know, came straight into the league the first time and won? Yeah, that would be one hell of a story if she came back into the league and beat Smets, took the belt off of him. Uh, I don't think that she will do that. I think that Smets has this in, in the bag, the place that he ended last season. and. It was just something incredible. And KO and Kalinowski in that title match at Spectacular was really something that was uh, unsettling to watch how quickly he just took took Kalinowski apart. I think we've dissected that match on a different podcast. We don't have to go back over it. But I think that he's going to be in a similar shape for season seven here. I think that he's going to be ready to go. Is he going to be at the same level that he is at the end of the last season? I think there will be a little bit of drop. If, if anything, this is the right time to be playing him if you're Mara Kanopic. But I do think that ring rust is going to be a little bit of a thing. I think it's going to be less of an issue than it might be for some other people. I think she's she's been around the Schmodown for a lot the last few months. You know, both live events with Dan Dan competing in them. She's been there. She's seen it. She's helping him study for inner geekdom. She's helping him, I'm sure, prepare for the singles matches as well. Uh, so I, I expect her to be relatively ready. But even with someone who's been around the league, we saw Mark Riley get dismantled by Andrew Guy and his return uh, to the singles division. Clearly, he wasn't ready for that, even though he'd been around the Schmodown uh, during during that interim period when he'd retired. Um, so I, I just don't think that uh, Mara, Mara can do it. I would think it, it would just be so amazing if she did, but I I, just, I have to pick Smets. Yeah, you know, these, this, these matches are so tough to pick because the – uh, players are so equivalent when you get to you know this really high level of the inner geekdom division um, that it really just can come down to one or two points here or there maybe you A know stealing you, round two so, yeah or someone misspeaking like you know don't tell uh, don't tell Peter um, for example decided a decided a key match in the inner geekdom 
division. Um, so you never know what's what these matches are going to come down to. But Especially yeah, this will be a five a five round match. There's there's yeah. more game there to play. Until I think we see exactly what where Mara is at now, having been away for so long, uh, I think I'm gonna pick Smets. I, I I can't see him losing if if he's in anything close to the same state that he was in that title match against Kalinowski. And with Mara just being the unknown, obviously she has the potential. She she can beat Smets. She has the capability yeah. to beat Smets during her initial run. I think she she could have beaten Smets if Smets had been around then. Um, but um, I, I just don't know, again, what, 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 where she is after the, you know, over a year away. Um, and so for now, I'm going to have to take uh, the smasher. Yeah, I, I think that it's also, I mean, there's a lot going on here. But, you know, Mara Knopic, which, which faction is she a part of? Uh, she's with Koi, the Quirky Marks. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The quirky. Yeah. Yeah. She was their third pick. Like, no. I think. I think that that Koi is a good manager for her. I think he'll be super supportive. In fact, did she KO him early? On? I think she might have KO'd him in that intergeekdom tournament. You might be uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. But no. I think that. I, I'm going back and forth on deciding whether or not it's better to jump straight into the title match with Smash or get yourself a number one contender shot first and and build some momentum, get get that familiarity back with playing the game. I just think that it's going to be tough to dive into that title match. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think uh, maybe the league is is even a little bit different from when she was in it. Um, and yeah, I think it is. That may that may play a factor as well. But um, okay, Scott, that I think should just about do it for our quick pick for free for all. Oh, good good, good thought. I, that's, that's tough. Who who do you got? Because there's there's so many. We don't even know who all is going to be in it, um, and, and so it, it's it's hard to pick. But um, it if Ethan's like there, maybe, I'm, I'm maybe you have somebody Ethan. in mind. Okay, I'm picking Ethan. If Ethan's there, if he's not there, then I'm going with Drew McQueenie. You know what? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on the limb, and I mean it's probably not really that much of a limb, but you gonna I'm say gonna Bibiani? Say, <laughs> I'm gonna say that Bibiani finally gets over the hump. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you really went out on a limb with the person who's best known for doing well at the free for all, right? But never winning, never winning. Uh, to, to that point, it, it has been kind of his bugaboo thus far. The thing he hasn't been able to do as a singles player um, right. is he has been MVP both years though. So that is true, but well, I shouldn't uh, say both the last two years, you know, it's, it's not winner. Um, true. But I, I do think Bibian like last year, he showed he can go from one to the end. And unless he's really unlucky, he's going to get a, a higher number than one this time around. And I think that, you know, when you take, some of the fatigue out of play. I, I don't know if fatigue got to him by the end of yeah. uh, the free for all last year, or, or you know, was it simply the fact that he was going up against you know Dan Merle by the end? But I think it, you know it, you shuffle the order around maybe a little bit. You put Bibiani there in the middle. Maybe Merle gets an earlier number this time around. Um, I, I like Bibiani's chances um, with you know any number better than one, honestly, um, yeah. where, where I think fatigue is going to be less of a factor. So I yeah. think he's going to be really hungry to win this after the way the last two years have gone. And so I'm going with the beast. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, so many parts of the free for all are shaped by the number that you draw. And in almost any scenario, William Bibiani is still the favorite, which speaks volumes to his knowledge. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of any sleepers that, that I might have maybe um, Barb, 
maybe Barbarian. Yeah, maybe Tom. Uh, Tom is obviously, we haven't seen him in the free-for-all yet. We know what he can do with round one questions. Uh, yeah. So I think that's a good shout. Um, we'll see. Maybe a rookie comes in and impresses people. But um, yeah, it's it's gonna it's it's always my favorite event of the Schmodown season, and so I'm very very excited for the 40 competitors, whoever they may be, that we're gonna get in this free for all. Yeah, I, I can't wait. All right, Scott, and with that, that will conclude our February 2020 episode of Champs Lunch. A uh, lot of lot of great stuff going on this past month, and a lot of great stuff to look forward to in the Schmodown. Uh, where can our Twitter listeners go to find some good stuff from you? At S Shelton two zero one three. I don't talk about the Schmodown too much, but maybe I'll, I'll start doing more of that uh, in the days to come. Because I mean, wow! Like I think this is the longest episode we've ever had for Champs Lunch, and it was the the, the debut month. Uh, for season seven and that speaks volumes to the quality that we have here so uh it's a great time to be a fan of the schmodown absolutely and you can find me at scarby dent on twitter you can also find our podcast at media plug pods uh don't forget about our patreon page that we have patreon.com slash media plug pods um over there you can support us at various tiers uh but even if you can't support us uh please like uh, review, rate, subscribe, do all of the things here in the Some Like It Scott feed where you found uh, this Champs Lunch episode. Check out all of our other podcasts, including Some Like It Scott. Um, and we hope you will join us next time when we will be back f- to discuss March 2020, including the free-for-all and all those big matches that we just predicted. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. This has been Champs Lunch. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.